So, why did Judas betray Jesus? What was it about Judas that made him susceptible to the temptation of the devil? We read in our passage today that Judas, it says, it says, um, uh, the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. What was it about Judas that made him uniquely susceptible to that prompting? Was Judas worse than the others? I mean, we know Judas was not a great person. Uh, we, we know that Judas, uh, in, in chapter 12, John has told us that Judas was the one who was in charge of the benevolence fund. And he would sometimes skim a little bit off the top and not give it all to the poor. You know, one of the, one of the great insights of the Presbyterian church is you can't always trust pastors. So, so one of the things that, that we have as a, as a constitutional requirement in the Presbyterian church is the pastor never touches the money. And I don't know if that's to remove the temptation or just because pastors are unscrupulous, but um, it's actually very freeing. So there's, there's people in the church who touch the money, and I'm not one of them. So that's actually a pretty, pretty great thing. But is it because, is it, is, does that make Judas unique? Was, was Judas uniquely temptable because of that? You know, my guess is that all of them were tempted, but only Judas succumbed to the temptation. And why is that? Is it because he was worse? You know, these were not choir boys. The, the 12 disciples, what we know of them is that none of them was really all that great. The very first one we're introduced to in any detail, Peter, when, when Jesus performs a miracle of this great catch of fish, Peter realizes he's in the presence of God and his first statement is, get away from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. So we don't know exactly what sin Peter was conscious of, but he was conscious of it. We know about James and John. John, uh, the, the, the disciple who is traditionally uh, held to be the, the writer of the, the very gospel we're reading today, James and his brother John were, were ambitious sneaks. So one day they got Jesus off to one side and they said, you know, hey, forget about those other losers. We want the top jobs in your administration. These were not choir boys. We know about... We know about uh, Levi, Levi the tax collector. He would look at, he would look at uh, Judas and say, Judas is an amateur thief. I was a pro. Okay, I was a tax collector. I worked for the Roman government. And the way you worked in, uh, as a tax gatherer in the Roman, in the Roman, uh, Roman uh, uh, occupied provinces is you got a license to steal. And so Levi would say, all it cost me was I had to sell out my country. I look at somebody like Judas, he's an amateur. He's a piker. I did it for a living. And of course, next to, next to, to Levi is Simon the Zealot. Now for us, a zealot simply means somebody who's very enthusiastic about something. But a zealot was a domestic terrorist. So if you think about somebody like the Sarnaev brothers or Timothy McVeigh, that's who was in Jesus' inner circle of 12 disciples. There were really... Not all that much to, to, to bet on. So what was it about Judas? What made Judas so uniquely susceptible? And honestly, think about it. If Jesus, if Judas is, is somehow a monster, if Judas is obviously worse than the others, doesn't that actually detract from the betrayal? I mean, uh, somebody who betrays you is someone you trust. 
And if Judas is a monster, everyone has already kind of discounted the fact, well, you know, I was never surprised because, you know, of course it was going to be Judas, right? And there's nothing in the scriptures that tell us that. That for the betrayal to be complete, it had to be somebody that Jesus would trust. So what was it about Judas? There are, there's a line of thought that says Judas is misunderstood. There's, there's a, there's a kind of approach to looking at the problem of Judas that says Judas wasn't really all that bad. He was, his, his mistake was that he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And every time Jesus talked about dying or talked about loving your neighbors, including Romans, uh, Judas said, you know, Jesus has just got it all wrong. I mean, obviously he's got power from God, but he just doesn't realize what it takes to be Messiah. All he needs is a nudge. You know, some people are born great. Others have greatness thrust upon them. I'm going to thrust some greatness on Jesus by getting him arrested. And then he will have no choice but to do some miracles that, that destroy the Romans. And then he will be the Messiah. So, so there's this kind of revisionist way of looking at Judas that says he actually was kind of, uh, he, he picked a bad course for a good end. That, that he was as surprised as anyone when Jesus didn't, didn't do anything. That Jesus simply went to the cross humbly. And I don't know if I, I like that way of thinking about Judas. See, I think Judas was really pretty much like the others. I think Jesus understood, Judas understood Jesus, um, perfectly well. He just didn't like what he heard. In our reading, um, we see that, uh, um, uh, so, so Judas, Judas, um, likes, uh, uh, understands what Jesus is doing, uh, but he doesn't like what he hears. Why, why doesn't he like it? What is it that he understands Ju- Ju- Jesus is doing? Uh, the Judas Jesus thing, I'm gonna stumble over that all day, so help me, pray for me. Um, so, what is it that Judas sees Jesus doing that he doesn't like? What is it that the other disciples see Jesus doing that they don't like? Well, let me, let me ask you this. What would you do if you had been given all authority? Right? That's what, that's what John tells us. He says, uh, Jesus knew that he, his hour had come. And, um, Jesus knew the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So what would you do if you were Jesus? You have been given all authority. What would you do with that? Let me scale that down. What would you do at work if you had been given all authority? What would your office look like? What would your parking space look like? What would your washroom look like? What would your paycheck look like? See, we understand what you do. If you've got all authority, if you're the big boss, if you're calling the shots, we understand what you do with that. But what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do when he understands that he has all authority? He gets up from the table. He takes off his robe. He wraps a towel around his waist. You notice the way that John is telling us every detail. He he wants us, this is like in the horror movie where the guy backs down the hallway, showing the flashlight in the wrong direction, right? He's walking us slowly through this, and we're supposed to go, no, 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 no. That could never be, he says. He wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basement. And in the first century, everybody knows where this is going, and it's going the wrong direction. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet 
drying them with the towel he had around them. Now I told the children a a true and proper telling of this story, that God loves us and wants to wash us clean. That's true. But in the first century, there's an extra dimension to this, which is that Jesus is doing the work of a slave. And we lose sight of that because for us, feet are things we don't ever see. Uh, you know, we just, you know, feet have become a, a private part of our existence. Um, um, in the first century, that wasn't the case. In the first century, everybody walked around barefoot, um, at least in their community. If they were going to travel someplace, they'd put on a pair of sandals. But a pair of sandals doesn't keep your feet clean. So when you arrived in somebody's home, you would clean your feet. It was part of the duty of a host to put some water there so you could clean them yourself. But if they, if they had means, if they had household servants, then part of hospitality was the, the host would provide a slave who would wash your feet for you. It was just the way things worked. In, in, here in Alaska, you walk around, um, out in the snow and mud, you get to somebody's house, you don't even have to, to ask. You know that the proper thing to do is to take off your muddy shoes. The difference is, we stop there. We, we walk around in our socks maybe, but we don't, we don't go barefoot in people's houses unless we're invited to. Because for us, feet are kind of a private thing. We see them on the beach, but we see a lot of us on the beach. But we don't see feet except there. So, in the first century, Jesus is looking like a slave. He's doing the work that only slaves would do. And, and the disciples are understanding exactly what he's up to. They're saying, this is wrong. You can't do this. This is not the way it's supposed to work. See, Jesus, you have all authority. I believe you are the Messiah sent from God, and people with all authority don't act like slaves. That's what Peter says when he comes to Peter. He says, no, you you can't do that. You can't wash my feet. But Jesus not only does it, but he invites us to do the same. He says, I've given you an example, and you should follow me. And I think this is where Judas differs from Peter. Because Peter goes along with it, reluctantly, but Peter goes along with it. But Judas realizes what Jesus is doing. Judas says, I understand what's going on here. You are revealing who you really are. See, I had hopes that you were a conquering Messiah, that you were a Messiah who would remove the Romans from this land. And now I realize you're a slave. You are You have all the power of God, but you are behaving like a slave. You are revealing your true nature. And Jesus would say, exactly. Not only that, Judas, but I am revealing who God is. I am one who came among you as a servant. And I accurately reflect the Father. The Father and I are one. Judas can't handle this. Judas, uh, we don't know why, right? John doesn't give us an insight into Judas's thought life, but Judas probably says one of two things. He says, he says, no, because there are people whose feet don't need to be washed, don't deserve to be washed. There are people whose feet, because of the way they got them dirty or because of what kind of people they are, they don't deserve to have their feet washed. You shouldn't be the kind of person who washes those feet. And for all I know, when Judas thinks that, maybe he's thinking about himself. After all, he was a thief. Maybe he's thinking, you know what, there are people who are just too far gone and I'm one of them. And they don't deserve to have their feet washed. But 
my guess is whether or not he thought that, he almost certainly thought this. He thought, you know what? I am willing to wash feet if it gets me into heaven, if it gets me a seat at the table, if it gets me the reward I'm really looking for. I will wash feet as a means to an end. But foot washing is something I graduate from. It's not something I graduate to. And Jesus says, but that's exactly the story. Foot washing is something we graduate to. There's a, there's a commonplace observation people make about the gospel. We say that Jesus uh, presents a gospel of unconditional love, that God loves us exactly like we are. And that's almost true. God accepts us as we are. But God loves us too much to leave us like we are because there is in all of us a little bit of that, maybe in some of us a lot, that either looks at our neighbor and says, or or maybe even our own feet, and says, there are feet that don't deserve to be washed. And God shouldn't be washing that kind of feet. Or who looks at God and says, no, I will wash feet for a reward, but I will not wash feet because of the intrinsic desirability of washing feet, because it is my highest purpose to wash feet. I will not be a slave except as a means to something else. And so Jesus says to the disciples, he says, unless I wash you, unless I cleanse you of that, you can have no part in me. You cannot have a relationship with me. So Judas is presented with a choice. Judas Judas is presented with the same choice that the other disciples are. And we see what Peter's response is. Peter, as always, is kind of the spokesperson for the other disciples. He says, no, I see what you're doing. I don't understand, and I sure don't like it. And Jesus says, but do you trust me? Because this is the way it's going to work. And Peter turns on a dime. He says, I still don't like it. I don't understand it. But I trust you. So wash all of me. And then Jesus has this little dialogue. You don't have to, the whole thing, right? But Peter turns on a dime. He says, okay, I trust you. And Judas goes out into the night and betrays Jesus because he cannot accept what Jesus has revealed. That the highest good is to be a servant of all. That who God is, is to be a servant of all. So Jesus says, I will wash you. I will make you into the kind of people who wash feet. I know you're not there today, but that's where we're headed. Paul Paul uses a different metaphor. Paul says, I know I know we're not there yet. He says, Paul Paul talks about being a um, um in um it's I have lost you, my bad. But uh there's a slide somewhere down there, first Corinthians uh chapter three. Paul tells the church in Corinth, he says, You are like infants. You're you're only capable of drinking milk, but you will mature. And as you mature into the likeness of Christ, you will eat solid food. He says that this is a process, that we become who God is making us. Peter has a different um, perspective because he was there that night. Paul wasn't. So his is a little more sharp-edged. It's the slide before this. Peter says, 
Um, he says, our God is a consuming fire. He says, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. He says that we all start as this kind of undifferentiated ore, but that God refines us and makes us into someone like Christ. And because he was there that night, and because he failed that night, he knows that that is an arduous process. It's a painful process. So Peter, Paul, John, they all say, we're not there, but God loves us too much to leave us where we are. That if we have a relationship with Jesus, he will take us to the place where we can wash people's feet, not as a means to an end, and not because they deserve to be washed, but because that is our understanding of the good. So, why don't, why don't we do that? Why don't we wash feet? Jesus says, I've set you an example. Why don't we do that? Well, we do. Um, I have participated in a, in a foot washing service. Um, I, just out of curiosity, have, have any others of you been in a foot washing service? So, so several of you have. Um, um, if you have not, I recommend it. Um, if you have the opportunity, I recommend you take part in a, in a foot washing service. I think you will um, find it uh, meaningful. So I certainly recommend it. Um, but uh, there's more prominent ways that we do this. I mean, some of us some of us have done it, but we haven't done it regularly in, in this church, at least not while I've been here. But we may have seen news stories like the, the one where the Pope washes uh, people's feet. Um, this was in 2016. Uh, uh, Pope Francis went to a uh, refugee center in Italy, and he um, there were volunteers who agreed to have their feet washed. So uh, the Pope washed the feet of these migrants in Italy. Last year, instead of going to a refugee camp, he went to um, a prison in, in Rome, and he washed the feet of inmates. Um, and I think that's great. I think Jesus looks at a picture like that. He looked at the event when it was happening, and he says, that's great. This is exactly the way I would like the church to behave. He says, this is who I am. I am the God-man who came among you to wash feet. And even so, I would quibble with what Pope Francis did. What Pope Francis did was he took the lessons of chapter 13 and applied them to the world as a whole. And I don't think that's wrong, but I don't think that's the place Jesus calls us to start. He says, you ought to wash each other's feet. This is something the community of faith does to one another. And I think sometimes we race past the church on our way to the world and so, um, as Jill mentioned, sometimes, uh, and, and no, it was, um, it was Larissa, one of you people, somebody earlier uh, had the same observation. Sometimes uh, we have more trouble dealing with the people in our church than we do with the people in the world. And Jesus is encouraging us to start there. He says, wash each other's feet. Now, I understand there's a lot of, a lot of quibbles. The first century feet aren't the same thing as 21st century feet. Things have changed. We wear shoes. We have different hygiene rules and so forth. So so maybe the lesson here isn't to wash feet. Maybe the lesson here is to serve, to go from the highest spot to the lowest spot. To move in. I, I was I was listening to somebody talk about um, their church has really long pews. And they said the best Christians are the ones in the middle. And I thought, yes, because they are they are washing the feet of the people who come later. So maybe Jesus 
would be delighted as much by a figurative response to this as a literal response. I can tell you if you do have the opportunity to participate in an actual foot washing, uh, you will not be disappointed. But um, in any event, every day we can figuratively wash each other's feet. Should we wash the feet of the people outside the church, people outside of the community of faith? Absolutely. I think people look at the Pope and they say, you know what, I don't believe what he believes. I don't understand why anybody would do that. But the truth of the matter is, the world would be a better place if we did that. And so I think it's a great witness. But I think, honestly, charity begins at home. Can we wash each other's feet as a congregation, literally and figuratively? Can we be the kind of community where we realize foot washing is not a means to an end, and it's not about whether the feet deserve it. It's because this is what Jesus is like, and this is what he wants to make us like. Let's be that kind of community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the example of Jesus and the example of uh, saints and, and popes and religious leaders down through the years who have literally and figuratively washed the feet of, the feet of disciples, and of non-believers. We pray, Lord, you would guide us so we can be equally quick to take the low spot and to wash the feet of those around us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.